This morning we are stepping aside from our journey on the Song of Ascents up to Jerusalem and into a series that correlates with our vision process that is just a focus on scriptures that that show us what vitality and, and vision looks like, not just in a church, but in each one of our lives. And so we're going to do a series on that, and there, there's, there's scriptures, many of which will be familiar to you, key scriptures on the, on the most important things that say things as clearly as possible about, about who we are and about what God is calling us to be and to do. But this morning, we're going to start that series with uh, a scripture from the book of Nehemiah, which is not just uh, a, a scripture about what, who we are and what we do, but how do we get there? How do we even begin to this process of vitality and vision from, from the hardest places, the most vulnerable places? And so I'm going to lead us in and read from chapter 1, the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. Listen to the word of God. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man 
Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. And while it seems like just a story of a man thousands of years ago, guide us by the power of your word to lead us where you would have us be. As we consider your words, guide my words, guide all of our hearts and minds. For we love you, Lord. Lead us now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of that, at the end of that passage, he mentions success. I just want to ask, what, what does success look like to you? It's a common exercise in the visioning process, something like something from the Seven Habits book, to begin with the end in mind. And we can all ask ourselves this as individuals or as a church. What does success look like to you? Let me ask you another question, similar question. What do you think success looks like to God? In you, in the, in the church, what does success look like to God as, as a whole? What does it look like? And, and how are those different viewpoints related? First, success in the church. We are in the visioning process. And, and when we think so often of success in the church, I, I, the first place I think most people go is nickels and noses. Have you ever heard that phrase before? It's the most common measure, the, the easiest, the quickest measure of success in a church, finances and numbers. And, but we also often use other measures like just the sense of busyness. How busy are we here? Or, or the amount of resources and programs that we can make available to people in the community and to each other. Or just that sense of security of belonging to something. All of these can be measures of success. For others, it's not a matter of worldly success, but the success too often in churches, just that sense of being in the right, in with God. It, it can even, even if it would lead to isolation and persecution and, and even the death of being a martyr, but that kind of success, that kind of real will to, to be right often puts us in an us-against-the-world posture all the time. And we become contrarians, and, and I think too often in our world and in our country, uh, Christians are considered this way, that, that we're the contrarians who are just being judgmental of everyone else, who, who just want to be right, measuring ourselves even by others' distaste, not necessarily by being a follower of Jesus. But when we look in Scripture, we are given a measure of success. Very simple, fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. The biblical measure of success is fruit. It's, it's, it's not about our success in the world or achieving something for God. It's about God working in us and through us. Now, fruit is, is something real. It's nutritious. It's a, it's a resource to the world in, in, in this, these terms for the kingdom. 
and there are many different kinds of fruit. The fruit can be nickels and noses. It can be martyrdom. It could be many different things. But you know it when you see it, when it's real. And it's all of this substance, people whose hearts are right with God. People's hearts and lives transformed and growing in the gospel. And and God uses that fruit as a resource for his work in the world. And, And it could be many different things, this fruit. But here's vitality. Here's, here's what we're looking for. It's, it's receiving the life God has for you. Doing what He's called you to do. And filled with the power of the Spirit to do it. That is vitality. Now, we are a congregation that is working on our vision. And, in, in, and I got to say, it's, it's always a funny process to me because in many ways, we already have our vision. It's, it's given to us. As followers of Jesus, Scripture has given us our mission, our vision in the broadest sense. We don't need to reinvent what God has already revealed to us in His Word. I really like the way Rick, Roar- Rick Warren summed it up in his book, The Purpose Driven Church. It was the book that preceded The Purpose Driven Life, which was, which was a huge book. But the principles were there as he applied them to the church first. And Warren said that every church already had its mission statement and its measure of success. They all go something like, this is the, the way he put it, a great commitment to the great commandment and the Great Commission make a great church. Do you hear that? A great commitment to the Great Commandment and the Great Commission make a great church. i got to say, they make a great life as well. Love for God and each other, that's, that's the Great Commandment, and a desire to share that love that comes to us through Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's the Great Commission. We can say it in some other way, but we don't need to reinvent it. As we, as we do our vision team, our quest is, is not to reinvent that mission, but to particularize that mission. How is God calling this body, this congregation, to carry out that mission here in this community now? Not not 20 years ago or 50 years ago, but right now. And how do we even get there? How do, we, how do we come to that answer? What are the elements? Now, there are times in history that people have gone through this process that we're going through now. And one notable one is Nehemiah. The people of Israel had found themselves in exile They've been in exile almost 70 years, and now it's time to begin over again in similar ways that we're at a crossroads as well. So let's look through this passage and see a couple of things Nehemiah does and what that, what that means for us as we embark on this process. The first thing Nehemiah does is he goes on a reality check, a reality check. It does no good to lie to ourselves about where we are at. Nehemiah's world He had been receiving reports about Jerusalem, the homeland of his people, while he is in the capital of the the Persian Empire, Susa. 
that, and that, that's the capital that rules over the known world at that time. Israel, Judah, and its capital, Jerusalem, had been defeated by the people that had taken them into exile, the Babylonians, in 587 B.C. But the Babylonians had subsequently been defeated by the Persians. And, and now it's 520 or so. And some of the exiles had returned to reoccupy Jerusalem in Israel. And Nehemiah finds himself, he's the official cupbearer of the king. That's a hugely important position in the capital of the Persian Empire. At this point in history, that is the most powerful man that the world had ever known, Xerxes I. And Nehemiah, a, a Jew in exile, he receives that report from Jerusalem that Jerusalem remains devastated. And, and the returning Israelites are not gaining a foothold in the land. They're not able to restore the important things like the wall and the security of the city. And it looks like the whole thing is just going to fall apart. And they're pressured by many around them who just want to see them fail. The rest of the book is about that. And they are vulnerable right now. And the Israelites don't have any sense of what to do about it. And the first thing Nehemiah does is he takes, that, the, takes in the reality of the situation, Jerusalem's vulnerability to being forever lost to his people. And, and it, it is a hard reality. It is a reality check. And it's especially for someone who would otherwise be pretty comfortable in his position in the king's court. He's got it made. And it leads to Nehemiah. It leads Nehemiah to what Mark Sayers would call a holy discontent. He can't stand to live in that situation alone, to leave that situation alone. Something has to happen. The first thing we do is take a, a, a reality check of the situation. And it's so much easier if we could just look back romantically. Remember the days that the pews were filled and dream of the legacy of the, thing, the way things used to be. Think to ourselves, if these walls could talk. But that's not what a reality check means. All, we will not be called back to what we once were. Israel is not going to go back to the time of David and Solomon. That was 500 years ago. And they will never be like that again. The world and God, they don't need that anymore. They are, however, called to go back to the relationship with God that they once had. And, and one day, there will be another king on the throne of David. And this time, it will be a reign that will last forever. And their relationship with God will be restored in a way that it hasn't been, not since the time of David and Solomon, but a relationship with God that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve before the fall. So the Israelites in Nehemiah's time are called to move ahead with what God has for them today on the road to redemption and renewal. And you don't move until you have a reality check and a discontent with where you are, a holy discontent. Our transition process began with a reality check, the first season of our transition. We spent some time, and I encourage you to look through the SWAT report, 
not just to look back, it will, it will be a part of our discussions as we now look forward. Sometimes it's going to be the hardest part, but, it, but it's also, I've got to tell you, awfully encouraging. The hardest part includes some of the, the weaknesses and threats that we identified as a congregation together. Concern over conflicts, both past and, and future, both internal and the external world ones coming in between us. Financial challenges, a desire to sustain the ministry, manpower challenges, enough people with enough energy and expertise to get all that we need and want done. Uh, it, it feels like with the Ukrainians, we just had an infusion of, of manpower as they cleaned the parking lot and the, and the, and the NPR this, just yesterday. But we have cultural challenges as well. These are maybe the hardest one. Uh, a world and neighborhood that has shifted from one set of values and concerns to, to different ones. And, and we often have a hard time bridging from where we are at into that community with the gospel. But we also looked back, looked at who we are and where we are and saw some key strengths. Most importantly, we have a faithful core, you, you who are here. And by this I mean a heart that is in love with God through Jesus Christ for what he has done for us and and a desire to share that love, to share that with our community, with people in our lives and beyond. And, And we are, for the size of our congregation, we are active and participating in this congregation at a very high level. We have gifts and skills and passions among us. We have people involved in ministry, both in the church, whether it's praying or studying or worshiping and and caring for each other and for our community, but also we have people among us in our, who are working in our families and in ministries and other ways in our community and in the world. And so we start with the reality check and that holy discontent that we're not meant to just stay here. The next thing we see in Nehemiah, the beginning of the vitalization. Nehemiah is a natural leader. Now, most leaders would start with that discontent and just want to get going. They just want to start and go and take charge of the situation. But looking at what he does helps all of us look at what we are to do as well. The first thing he does is he goes to God with the desperate need. He wept and mourned and fasted and prayed. That's, that's exactly what we're starting with our visioning process, the first step. Whether it's at 6.35 every day, pray together but all the time, pray. One church vitality resource has a devotion that says, in our day, the thoughts of church people often turn to strategic responses to struggle and decline. The solution is about methods or programs, we think. So we attend a conference or seminar, or we get the latest book on renewal or revitalization. As important as these might be in finding a comprehensive solution, the starting point is spiritual. 
when the leaders and congregations of our struggles, struggling churches, seriously turn to God as they weep, mourn, fast, and pray, churches will truly begin to vitalize. We begin a vitalization process with prayer, looking to have each on the team going to God and each connected to you, praying for them, with them, with all of us, all of us praying together. Now, that's the most significant way we all participate in this process. It's prayer. It's going to God. It's the first and most important way we contend for our church. Mark Sayers, an Australian pastor, right? Choosing not punditry, but contention. Instead, the believer's way is prayer. Central to renewal cells and remnants in every move of God is the practice of contending prayer. Going to God with the desire for your church. But here's another thing that happens when when Nehemiah begins. He asks, how could we let this happen? When looking especially at at, at hard changes in the church and in in the world, it's easy to respond by, by just trying to place blame for whatever has gone wrong. Whenever someone hurts or someone hurts us or someone else, for whatever has gone wrong, that is often our first response. It's just to blame. It's easy to imagine Nehemiah's response to the devastation of Jerusalem would be to blame the Babylonians, to blame anyone, to blame God. Blame God for letting the Babylonians destroy Israel in the first place. Blame God for allowing factions and personalities to threaten the work of rebuilding Jerusalem. What Nehemiah does, though, is totally different. He recognizes the failure of his own people in the past and today and even his own complicity in that failure, and to recognize it as a failure of faith, of trusting God to be their God. He confesses, he confesses their sin and his sin. Honestly, what ha- often happens in declining churches is people are trying to maintain their foxholes along the front line. They've been in those foxholes for a while, and it gets harder and harder to maintain everything the way it's always been. And it gets frustrating that, that people aren't coming along to help you. There's no reinforcements coming along. And eventually, we start looking at other foxholes along the line and wondering why they aren't helping you to maintain your ground. But honestly, they're feeling the same way about you. And pretty soon, instead of, you know, facing the enemy, we start firing at each other across the line, and the line begins to fall apart. Maybe, maybe we're blame leadership, but the truth is we get so, tire, so tied to our positions, we sometimes never consider that the right thing to do is to change, change the plan, that there can never be another plan, another way forward. We have a God who has a plan, and it's not our plan. 
But while I, I don't trust every general's strategy, I trust the king's strategy more than my own with a little vantage point that I have. The first step in trust is to confess that our own strategy isn't the be-all and end-all, isn't the only way forward. And then to trust that His is. This is confession and repentance. We start every service with it. It's, it's a core part of our relationship with God. As we, as we set our own, our own priorities aside and seek God's. Finally, in verses 8 through 10, we see Nehemiah with the promise of return. This is what success looks like to Nehemiah, the promise of God fulfilled. For him, that means that his people would occupy the land once again and thrive there because this is the place to remember the promises and faithfulness of God. Through the prophets, God has promised that the people would return to this land after the exile, the promised land. This is the moment when he chooses the promises of God over the, the promise of a good life and a high position with the greatest ruler the world had known for the promise of God through the prophets. This revival of Israel comes from the depth of Nehemiah's heart to pursue God rather than the world's very best promises. Got to remember what that promise is. It's, it's not what we want it to be. We're never going to be some romanticized version of what things once were or anything else. It's not going to be like when David and Solomon was king again, not as a nation, not as a church. It's going to be God working through us today for his will and his way. We and all who are willing to look would see God's redemptive hand working in and among and through us. That's the promise of God. You see, his vision is our success. Nehemiah saw all that was in front of him. What was right in front of him looked insurmountable. He could, he could not talk to the king without permission. He couldn't even talk to Xerxes without permission. He certainly could not decide to leave the king without permission. What, he, what is he supposed to do when you don't know what to do and it feels like there's nothing that you can do? The same was true for those who had already returned to a broken Jerusalem and faced overwhelming resistance and a wall, a wall that seemed too big to fix. Nehemiah prayed, that God would make a way for him to be able to do something about restoring Jerusalem. God's is a power that is higher than Xerxes and greater than those who threaten them at the walls of Jerusalem. What we are in the middle of is not just our church looking for a way forward. It is, in a sense, the church, whole church in the Western world. How do we go forward? with the new world that surrounds us, and, and each one of us as believers. How are we called to live in the new culture in which we are surrounded? What we are seeking is often called revival or renewal. 
and the ways of the world would be to plan, to strategize for dealing with all, all that we need to change. And whatever holy con- discontent God has placed on your heart, we have, each one of us, a decision of how we're going to handle it, how to move forward in a changing world, and through, through a transition for the church. Go to God and contend for the church. Not to be bigger or richer or writer. Contend for it to be God's church, full of people reveling in and sharing God's presence and longing, contending for it together. It begins with a holy discontent, and it has contending prayer and confession, and it longs for the work, for the fruit of God and His presence among the people of God, and shared with a a welcome to all who would come and see the riches in God's grace. Here's the reality. Things over the centuries have changed when small groups of people come together and contend in prayer with God. Mark Sayers writes, a handful of people find each other. They are united by their driving desire to pray and contend for God to act. In the north of Scotland, two elderly disabled sisters prayed together by their fire, leading to the Hebridean revival. The revival that broke out in New York during the 19th century can be traced back to a handful of businessmen praying at lunch in a small room in Wall Street. The awakening that occurred in South India in the 1930s was contended for by three preteen boys who had become transformed by God and early each morning prayed in the jungle on the edges of their town. Amazing. That's how things start. So let's try this out now. Let's pray. Let's even do it now. We have the framework within our service. This services, all that they are doing is providing a framework for us to come before God. So we're going to have three more sections in our worship. First, we're going to have the offering time. We're going to where we recognize the the richness of God's salvation and presence in our lives and offer ourselves to Him anew, along with our tithes and our offerings, all in gratitude and worship for His love and salvation. And then we're going to see and be touched by that love again as we come to the table and experience the promise and the presence of God and salvation filling us. And finally, we're going to have one more element of worship. We'll have one more chance to express ourselves in worship and song with the hymn that normally we would sing at Advent, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's, it's one of longing for God's presence with us, contending for God to be present with us, a presence that is fulfilled by the coming of Jesus and is still with us through the presence of the Holy Spirit in each believer. Worship with all the longing and joy for the presence of God in our lives. Our greatest love. It's merely His presence working in and through us that we long for 
and that we share. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed at your presence and your love as we've met you in Jesus Christ who died for the forgiveness of our sins and has risen to new life that we might live with you. God, in the power of your spirit, work through us as we come and we continue our worship now, as we give you our tithes and offerings, as we lift up our song and as we come to the table. Lord, we worship you and we love you and show us evermore how to share you and and the opportunities you're placing before us to be your church in this community. God, guide us, for we love you, Lord, for you are worthy of all our prayers. God, thank you for your word and guide us in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.